episode 39 and I'm calling this this episode fight the power and I have here a wonderful brain I should call that first a wonderful brain a visionary creator the lovely we'll say doctor yes please Timory Lee <laughs> thank you for having me that's a very very kind and generous in- introduction because you do a lot and all that you do your events are they're fun events but at the same time, every single one of them is like this, some form of education in them. You know, whether it be the the show, the game show that you have, this, I believe there's a Six Sex Six show. Uh, yeah, so the the comedy sex ed show is called DTF. It's DTF. the Daryl Timree Fun Hour. Yeah, we like we are like, what if The View was all about fucking? Beautiful. With a game. <laughs> yes. If The View was all about that, that would be very interesting. Bob Walters talking about that would be very, very special. <laughs> That would be be special. (laughs) Uh, It would be great. The reason why I have you back on this show today is because I want to have a moment where I, as the host, do less talking and more listening. Because I feel like that is what we as men or cisgendered men need to do when it comes down to women. And before I even get into the questions, remember I asked on Facebook, I said, I'm looking for a guest talk about feminism on the show people were like it's a broad topic i said of course it's a broad topic but i wanted to talk about feminism in the scope of today and the narrative of today because we're looking at an era where we've had the times up movement we've had the me too movement that stirred up a shitstorm in hollywood but for good reason and we see people like harvey Weinstein. einstein mm-hmm. get dealt with we've seen bill cosby go to jail and they said he actually had pudding for his first meal I thought that was kind of poetic no for real yeah I heard he, so <laughs> they actually gave him pudding for his first meal then i read a story that someone had thrown a stale hot dog bun at him while I was in jail. So it was quite interesting. And then, you know, you have all these different stories in Hollywood that, that may have, that have happened. You know, there are other industries like the hip-hop community or hip-hop period, and I would be interested, and yet I'm kind of afraid to see how the Me Too movement could shake up that area as well. But then we come down to politics. We have a president who, before he got into office, talked about grabbing women by the pussy. We have that. Let me fast forward to Kavanaugh, who was, as of, I want to say yesterday, not yesterday, was it, was it yesterday? Well, it might have been Friday, that he was uh, confirmed for the Supreme Court. And I guess the thing that really disgusted me the most about everything is the fact that she, uh, Dr. Ford, one of his accusers, came under so much fire. But I never expected to hear a U.S. president, though I know this guy is completely special, <laughs> right? 45 was different. I never thought I would see the day where we have someone who is at the highest position in this country come out and mock her in front of of the entire world. I'm in a place now where I realize, and I've always known this, but now more so than ever, that I have to do something. I don't know what to do or when it's, you know, what what the exact action is going to be, but I feel like as a guy, there is a lot for me to do. So, Tim, I'm going to ask you a question. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on feminism in reference to, pardon me, in regards to this time period that we're in? Like, how important is it to this current narrative? Well, I think one of the things that's been really crystallized for me in the last few weeks, there's this contingent of people who were very surprised by the fact that Kavanaugh got confirmed. That, I mean, this is a dude who... There's got to be 20 other dudes that very easily could have been put in the spot that are named, you know, Chad or whatever, <laughs> a bunch of random guys who all went to Ivy Leagues, who all could be in line on the party politics, who are all anti-choice, who are all like, you know, fit in the suit in the exact same dimensions. There's a ton of them. But the fact that uh, this particular dude needed to be pushed through after these allegations is can I cuss on the show also? Let it all out. Okay, I just want to check. It's just a big fuck you. And it's literally like the reason that Trump is in power right now is this very angry uh, segment of like racist white people who just literally like the cruelty is the point. There's a great piece in the Atlantic right now. I think it's Jessica Valenti wrote it. It's like the cruelty is the point. The fact that he mocks people, the fact that he is just such an obvious jerk, like, like just an over-the-top comic villain is the point. Like, it's it's this, like, movement now that's, like, you know, nuke the whole planet to own the libs. You know, this this whole segment. So 
what what happened when Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed is that we we affirmed who we are as a country because today as we're recording is I'm using air quotes Columbus Day. So like what is America? This is kind of on brand actually. Like to confirm this rich dude who has a whole, you know, like slew of crimes behind him against other human beings, that's kind of on brand for America. And so I think that for some white women, this is kind of like a wake up. But I think that a lot of people have been saying for a long time, no, this is who we are. And we're just still that. When I was growing up, there was a lot of discussion like, you know, like we are post-racism. We are post-sexism. We are in a place where everybody can succeed and everybody has a chance and we're all equal. And like, I think that that was aspirational. We wanted to teach kids that because then it would be our truth that we would grow up and we would think that that was true and we would act accordingly. But that message did not include the fact that that's not actually true in day-to-day life, that we experience different realities based on who we are. And so for a bunch of kids who like grew up in the 80s and the 90s, we're like, no, we're all we're fine now. Like everything's fine now. Why is everybody complaining? You know, everybody has the same rights. And so we're like, we're having this reckoning, which is like what the reality is, what our aspirations were and like how how we're going to balance all of the civil rights issues that we never have really dealt with, have never really solved with the fact that our country is increasingly becoming owned by a very small number of wealthy people. We have a a wealth disparity um, where this 1% owns more than at any point in history, except for right before the Great Depression. So economically, we are in the same spot we were in the 1920s and culturally kind of are too. So it's it's kind of, you know, it's if we look back, like th- this has happened before, it'll happen again. And I don't know what the next catalyst will be, but this is this sort of back and forth for every step we take forward, we, you know, get pushed back. But that I say with um, absolute hope for the future, because everything I do is exists for the purposes of like, let's build the world we want to live in. All the stuff I do, sex education, burlesque, um, all these different forms of edutainment activism. Um, it's all for, yeah, no, it's garbage. It's a big old garbage fire. But you know what the biggest fuck you to Mitch McConnell is? Living your queer, sexy life. You know, going out and loving who you are and and hanging out with people that you enjoy and, and despite all their efforts, thriving. I think that's one of the forms of resistance we need to lean into more. Because yeah, vote. Yeah, raise money. Yeah, get out in the streets and like protest. But also remember that you living your life is an act of defiance, despite everything that they have just tried to like do to so many different marginalized populations. So as a feminist, I think that it's super important. Um, If your feminism doesn't think about women of color, if your feminism doesn't think about queer women, if your feminism doesn't think about people with disabilities, it's not feminism. It's something else. Um, So it's like just super important that we just look at this from a system place and like our individual moments of empathy with these things where, you know, Brett Kavanaugh brought out the fact that like a really significant portion of our population has experienced sexual violence, have been victimized. Um, And so this was one of the opportunities for people to like really look at Dr. Ford and really empathize and be like, oh, I see her right now and how incredible it is that she's holding up under these circumstances. And they see Brett Kavanaugh and they're like, oh, that looks exactly like the guy and the way he's being blustery and he's upset because how dare you accuse him of a thing he's done. And there's there's all of that where there's these opportunities for empathy but we also still need to be like standing up for each other even in situations we would never personally experience and so that's why i really appreciate like the the concept you brought up of like men doing stuff like that is that is what's necessary what's necessary is for those who have a particular type of privilege to speak to the other people who have that type of privilege it's on white people to talk to other white people you know it's on men to talk to other men to like to shut down rape jokes to like be like dude that's not okay like it's on for every bit of privilege that you have to speak for not speak for let me take that back to to be like amongst the other folks who experience that same privilege to be like that's not what we're about we are not those people so i remember being like increasingly disturbed every time i heard brock turner's name mm. the time because anyone first of all anytime i heard of anyone like committing an act of rape that was that savage i'm thinking okay this guy's gonna get a crazy amount of time in jail he gave him six months mm. and then he fought back yeah and, and, and <laughs> he appealed half on of that. that yeah like how how and it's reminded me of the one time the one guy who like he i guess he killed someone in a uh, um 
in his car, vehicular homicide, and he got off with, like, what is it, affluenza? Uh, well, I mean, that's not, like, a legal defense, but it's basically their their idea that, like, he didn't understand the consequences of his actions because yada, yada, yada. So that reminds me with this guy, because with Brock, it was like the guy said, well, you know, we don't want to ruin his life. Yeah. It brings me to the idea of rape culture. We hear about it, talk about it, but I feel like there's a portion of people out there, and I'll speak for men, uh, for my, uh, my uh, we call it, congregation, if you will, who are ignorant to, to what it is. So could you please uh, give us your definition of what rape culture is? Yeah, that's a really good question, because uh, people hear that term and don't really know what it means. Because, like, in theory, everybody's against rape, right? Like, if right. you go around and you ask people, like, are you pro-rape? You're not going to find people who say yes. But it has to do with the ways in which we sustain um, culturally a, a, a phenomenon where um, consent isn't actually really valued, um, where we objectify certain people and we blame them for their own victimization and we brush aside allegations of bad behavior and we make excuses for it. So it's a whole bunch of different things. It's a lot of tiny pieces that fit together. It's, it's things about how you ask questions about what the victim should have done differently it's about how we empathize with uh, abusers and we can come up with these ideas that these 36-year-old white men, you know, like all are somehow children who can't be held responsible for their behaviors. Although we would hold like a 12-year-old black boy responsible, you know, for how he should have behaved differently. And it's the ways in which we victim blame and the ways in which we make it really painful and difficult to come forward with allegations and just tear people apart for doing that. So... It's in it's in the tiny tiny details because it's it's not just in this Kavanaugh hearing. It's also in the ways that we like teach kids that their bodily autonomy doesn't matter. Like this is an example that I give all the time. This is a this is a very extreme specific thing. So like little kids who don't want to be hugged um, and we tell them that they have to and we're saying like no like Aunt Susan loves you. Grandma bought you this present. You know, you you don't want to be rude. They love you. All of these reasons that you should completely like forget about your own personal comfort and give someone physical affection that they want. And then we're surprised, quotation marks, we're surprised when somebody would grow up and have a hard time saying no, like vocally when someone has bought them dinner and like tells them like, but I do all these nice things for you or I love you or it'll make me sad if you don't or like whatever the reasons are that people get coerced or manipulated into situations that they don't want to be in. Gender regardless, we teach little kids that, you know, we, we say this stuff like if anybody touches you in these areas, that's bad, which just actually is sex shaming which is just this whole weird, like, now I'm going to have all these schemas around, like, swimsuit parts and how they're bad, like like my vulva's bad or something like that. So that's what that teaches. And instead it teaches us that, like, no, we really don't have a choice over what happens with our bodies because there are all these mitigating factors and you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings if they feel like touching you. So it's it's all these millions of cultural pieces. It's this, you know, it's these images of, you know, just parts of women and they're being, like, banked or whatever they're like not actual people you never see their faces and it's just this culture of tiny tiny pieces that add up to in the moment people aren't thinking about consent and we don't value it on a really innate level we don't approach basic cultural things like we don't think about consent when we're going to the doctor like does anybody ever actually ask you before they do stuff pull your pants down like okay yeah, right? right. Like, yeah. I mean, in that situation, it's like I have to get some stuff done. But like, here's a here's a here's a weird specific example of the way that we don't actually value consent. There is a this has been a problem for a long time. Medical schools as a means of teaching medical students about pelvic exams will have medical students conduct them on people who are unconscious, who are there for surgery unrelated to that. Right. Like, so let's say I'm going in for like some sort of like facial reconstructive surgery or I'm in there for, you know, something on my lungs or whatever under the general consent that you sign 
for the hospital to do this procedure, what they have decided to do in many of these cases is anesthetize women are being used as effectively like models, as objects for medical students to come in and practice doing pelvic exams. This is a real actual thing and it's been going on for forever. And there have been a few doctors who like were like, nope, nope, this isn't okay and came out about it with great risk to their careers because the way the medical community works is incredibly hierarchical, is incredibly traditional. To speak back to your your attending or your you know, when you're a resident or whatever, and to speak out against the system is incredibly dangerous to somebody in the medical profession. But this is a real thing. Um, AG, Amy Joe Goddard is a sex educator who's been trying to make a, a documentary on this problem. And there is a solution. And it's literally to have educators who are used as the person upon which you can practice. And they are trained for this and they can talk to the to the medical student about like how, how it feels and what to do and that sort of thing. And it's an education thing. It's an option we could totally actually fix. But just historically, it's been easier to just do these things on people who are unconscious. And like when you think about the fact that like you're just having a bunch of random humans root around inside of you without your consent and you wake up and you don't know about it. You don't know that it happened. Like that is this super random stupid thing. How is that still possible? And it's because we don't genuinely value consent. The medical community has a long history of having problems like this, but it's it's our whole culture. It's like every tiny piece that contributes to taking away bodily autonomy. When you were talking about the idea of consent, I think back to my peers. And when you're saying all this, I have to really just go back and like check my like conditioning, not from my parental units, but from friends, especially once you got into, got into the college game. Because I would see different guys and their different methods, how they would get the uh, quote unquote job done. Now, I was always the observer listening to these guys because I, I was just hella awkward even back then. And they would say, you know, hey, you got to say this to him, say that to him. Or they might say no at first, but you know, you talk to him, you know, you talk him into it. And that seemed so normal back then. But could you, we just didn't have, no one was like, was there saying like, yo, dude, that's weird. Well, I mean, cause that's how, like how are young boys taught to feel like men? And this is the problem is that we have this very specific set of rules about this is what makes you masculine. This is what makes you a man. And there isn't really like another brand to choose. Like you either, like what exists in the culture is being a man is physical strength, it is sexual prowess, it is making money, it is like having no vulnerabilities and the only emotions you're allowed to express are like anger and lust and like maybe you're allowed to cry if your friend dies. <laughs> like you're not allowed. You're not allowed culturally the the range of expressions. There's a bunch of jobs that are considered like inappropriate. Like as as feminism has made in-grounds for women to have greater allowances of expression, like I can wear pants. There are a lot of jobs that I can do that somebody a hundred years ago couldn't have done. There's all of these options opened up for me that were historically masculine. But men have not uh, accepted feminism culturally in the same way and how it would open up opportunities for them as well because so much of what is masculine and so much is like being a dude and being a man is rejecting anything that has been historically feminine our masculinity is defined by not being feminine which is like unsustainable you can't be defined by what you are refusing to be like we have to find a new model of masculinity that is like finding strength and power in nurturing and sharing and cooperating and protecting and building and creating and collaborating. These are more sustainable values, not just in dominance, not just in being the most. And like Trump is an example of like why, like he's supported by all these guys whose idea of like they think he's super rich and therefore that makes up for the fact that he like probably can't bench press anything and like he's, you know, not particularly impressive in any other way. It's just that he comes off as wealthy to people who don't understand how his business has actually worked. And like we need to come up with a model of masculine sexual sexual expression that values like pleasure because so much of what we tell boys is that your your value as a man will be measured in your ability to get access to women and to be able to use them like machines like to play them like instruments you know to like treating women not like a person you're having an interaction with it, like sex has any sort of intimate communicative possibilities but it's literally like putting coins in the slot and then playing pinball 
Like that's how boys are taught to view women. And so that does a whole lot of wrong things. And and the most obvious in this case is we talk about like rape culture, right? Like where it's like subterfuge and seduction and force are all perfectly good options for getting access to this. But on, on a more personal level for men, it really shuts down possibilities of having a fully fleshed out relationship with a sexual partner where you like can genuinely be vulnerable to each other and connect and like experience sexuality as this like, playgrounds where you explore together and experiment because if the only way that sex is good is if you come in and you do x y and z in the correct order (laughs) like and if those things don't happen it wasn't good right like it doesn't give us space to be people so like it's 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 very obviously bad for rape culture reasons but it's also like shutting down all these opportunities for like human connection and like fun like it's shutting down the possibilities of fun and that's why i really wish like There's so many advantages for men to get on board with feminism. Like you would have better sex, (laughs) like literally everything, every, everything could be open. You just have to give up the idea that you're inherently better because you have a dick. You know, that's the thing. You just have to make that trade. Again, I go back to, you know, the old era and that was the thing. We thought we had to do ABC to get the DEF and that was that, right? And it wasn't until I was able to deal with women on my own terms, in my own way, that I was able to have those moments of exploration and have those moments of being vulnerable because I felt like in that era that if I didn't do certain things, then it would be like, oh, well, Mike, whack out here, son. Not doing your thing out here. But I was never like the player dude because I wanted to have that intimate connection. But it wasn't cool, you know, because, again, it was about your body count more than it was about you being with someone that you actually cared about, pretty much, you know. Because I remember being around a lot of lot of athletes back then, and I was like, those were the guys, like, yo, you automatically assumed he got everything. He's getting all the girls. But there were a few guys there who were straight-up monogamous. Had the girl from, like, freshman year, past graduation. Some of them are still with them now to this very day. So we always tended to buy into this illusion into this image what we thought being a man was about in terms of like you know sexuality but we didn't have that information and I think that like you said we need to have a different standard a different lesson because if I ever like bring a you know son into this world years from now I would want them to understand that masculinity isn't just one thing it can't be just one thing because people think that oh if you're a man you can't wear pink you can't wear flowers different ideas that people put into your head keep you from being the best version of yourself i can't i'll tell you right now there's times where like i had like i'll be emotional and i would cry but i wouldn't dare do it amongst my peers because worrying about the uh, perception but as i got older it was like listen if you are who you are and you and you embrace what you are and you love yourself, that's all that matters. And I have this book, I think her name is Chimmy Manda, mm-hmm. and her, this book is called We Should All Be Feminists. At first, me being ignorant, I once thought that I couldn't be because I was a guy. Once I read the book, and she said, pretty much, if you want equal rights, and if you're down for everybody getting what they should get, then you are a feminist. And I said, well, damn, I guess it is what it is. So I just, when I, when I hear you speak and I hear about all these things, you know, these, these politicians and just the way the culture is now, like, I really want to do something to change something. And I also feel the need to say that, like, I'm sorry for what my gender has done in the past and what they're doing now and what they may do in the future. I don't know. There needs to be a sense of healing on our side because we come to you with two women damaged and we don't even know we're damaged. Because in our mind, we think that we're on point, but we have no, we have no just like no sense of common sense. Or we have no sense of understanding that the golden rule has to apply to everybody. It's not just about treating your buddies like you would treat yourself. No, like you have to treat women like you would treat yourself. You have to being respectful, respecting their bodies, respecting their space, respecting everything about them. You know, we talk about, oh yeah, well, you know, you have your mothers, you have sisters, you have daughters, you should be able to relate. But it's like it's deeper than that. It's on a human level. That's what I'm trying to get better at understanding. So I'm curious to know, how do you feel about the time that we're in? The things, things that, that you see? You know, I, I can imagine some things are, are, are tough, tough, tough to watch. You mentioned before you got on the, uh, you were recording that a few of your friends 
have been pretty sad over the past few weeks because of all this stuff that's been going on in the good old U.S. of A. Like, how do you feel? Just me personally? Yeah, personally, yeah. I think, well, the day of the Kavanaugh hearings where Dr. Ford testified and then Brett got up there and talked about beer at a job interview 30 times, that was a rough day. That was a rough day. I felt just this low-key sadness all day. It just was like carrying around a really heavy bag that, didn't really have anything in it, right? Like it's just like hauling it around all day. And it just made everything a little bit more um, near. It made every sadness a little bit closer. And it made every nice thing, every like tiny human moment also a little bit more real. So the opportunities for connection with other people that I had throughout the day felt more meaningful because of it. So it was it was just intense on that level because watching Dr. Ford testify was just like the most relatable thing. And not because I've had that exact experience, but because if you've been raised as a woman in this culture, you know exactly what that went down like. You know exactly how her thought processes were at the time and why she didn't come forward. And there's just this like overwhelming desire to just like scream in the faces of the people who are like oh, she's clearly a liar. And I'd be like, why? There is not enough money in the world to like put yourself up under that microscope so that a bunch of people can call you names. It's not like she's going to turn this into like a lucrative career. She just, she already came from money. She was born into money, which is why she went to this elite prep school with him. And it's why she is currently a researcher at Stanford. She doesn't need the money. Like, what a ridiculous claim. And all of these people who just have these absurd arguments, they're just so stupid. They're like, oh, well, I mean, it probably happened, but she's wrong about who it was. The fuck? <laughs> the yeah. actual fuck is that argument? Right. Like, that, like, that is literally, literally doesn't, does not make sense on any level. It's like, yeah, it probably happened, but how could you how could you remember? Well, I mean, she's actually a a psych researcher and she explained in her testimony how various neurotransmitters work in translating traumatic memory to the hippocampus, like through the hippocampus into long-term memories. And anybody who's ever had like a, a moment in their life that was crystallized because it was incredibly impactful. Like a question you can ask people is like about like September 11th, right? You can ask people about moments like that and they'll remember something like exactly where they were when they heard it or what they did that night with their, you know, their loved ones, their friends, whatever. They can't tell you what they had for lunch that day. They can't tell you what they wore. And the fact that we call it September of 11th is the reason we remember the day. But most of the time, humans are terrible at recalling dates. They're awful at it. Like humans are real bad at that. Um, if I just ask you like what you did two Wednesdays ago, good luck without looking at a calendar, unless you're a specific type of person who has like an autobiographical memory. I can't tell you anything. Yeah, exactly. Like that's not how we, that's not how we integrate um, experiences into long-term memory. And she literally is the expert on that and was trying to explain that. And so it's super frustrating to have really dumb people. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but they were just real dumb, convinced that like, no, well that's, she's probably wrong about her own lived experience. Uh, based on nothing other than the fact that I don't want to believe it's true. That's that's really all it is. All the people who are pushing back right now, they just don't want to believe it's true. Because why? Why don't you want to believe it's true? Well, if that's true, then that means that this whole system of governance, which, you know, like, let's just say I'm like this Kansas white woman who like just really cares about, you know, banning abortion. Like, that's really my, that's really my thing. If that, if that's true, well, then I have to question a whole lot of stuff. I have to question all of my legislators that I have supported this whole time because we all, you know, value life and we're the values voters and we're the ones that are holding up ethics in this country that's being like torn away. And if if she's actually right and one of the guys on my side is bad, well, then now I have to question everything. And if it turns out that like that behavior that Kavanaugh engaged in as a teenager is actually bad, because that's the other thing is people are like, so maybe he did it, but it's not that bad. Or maybe he did it, but he was 17. If we actually take those things seriously, 
then I have to reconsider my entire life. I have to consider the men around me and what they've done. And here's the worst one. Here's the thing that I think is the hardest for some women, especially white women, is then they have to look back at their own lives and realize that they have had traumas that like they haven't appropriately dealt with. They have to acknowledge what's happened to them. And I think that's one of the hardest things for a lot of people is in, and that's demographics regardless is to look at your own life and see the things that like were actually incredibly fucked up and should not have happened to you. But if you acknowledge that it was fucked up, then you have to go like, I've been carrying around this thing that hurts me. And I don't want to think about that. I don't want to acknowledge that I've ever been a victim. I don't want to feel like a victim. Being a victim sounds awful. Victims are powerless. Victims don't have a voice. Instead, that's why we use survivor, because we are all of the experiences that we've had in our whole lives put together. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the achievements, the times that like were mediocre. We are just a collection of those things. And so a lot of us don't want to acknowledge how endemic this problem is, because then we have to like actually look at our own fucking backpack and be like, what is all the shit that I'm carrying with me? And so that's part of it. It's like, I'm... The question you actually asked me was my feelings, but <laughs> yeah. So what I, what I'm feeling today and I have felt the last few days. So it was Outfest in Philadelphia this last weekend, which is, which is kind of like pride, but it's a little less corporate <laughs> ironically. Um, but it's just about, and it's, it's like a celebration of the LGBT community and it's just like a huge party. And, um, just like thinking about it in the context of, yeah, I can be really sad. Like if I wouldn't think about it, it's, it's tragic. The whole history of America is tragic. But also I have constructed a life in which everything that I do is an active fuck you to patriarchy, to white supremacy, to all of these systems that, that do these terrible things. Everything I do is a fuck you to that. Everything I do is like to encourage other people to be empowered themselves, to love their bodies, to live lives of their own choosing, all of that kind of stuff. So everything I'm doing is resistance. And for that, I feel good. Like, I, you know, I'm still a person. I felt sad, but like today, today I'm just like weaponized. Beautiful. You brought up the statement that there are people who just don't want to believe it's true, which is why they're so like, nah, it didn't happen. Cause it's, because they just want to have that terrible thing in their mind, right? And I thought about, again, college, because so much went down to college. There are moments when there were stories of women who reported themselves being sexually assaulted, but, but the person that they accused was like a popular guy. Maybe he'd been an athlete or some other guy in a frat or whatever. There were times when, especially if the young lady had reputation, of sorts, people will automatically be like, oh, she's lying, she's lying, this guy's, he wouldn't do that, he wouldn't do that. And it was a shame because some of these ladies never really had a chance. So even if the charges per se didn't reach like um, any of the officials in school, they would still be looked upon as, oh, she lied on that guy. And he would still maintain his reputation no matter what, no matter what happened. Even if we knew this guy was like a slime ball, still, he could, he could still save face. And it's just, um, it's just wild because I found out maybe a year or two ago, there was a, uh, a friend of mine I went to school with and she looked out for me all the time. I was an underclassman, she looked out for me. She had told me that she had an experience of sexual assault and she was surprised that I didn't hear about it. I said, I definitely didn't hear about that. But it shocked the shit out of me because I'm like, yo, you, you're, you're my peoples. And I'm like, and I knew the other parties who were involved in it. I was like, what the fuck? But never once was there a moment where I was like, nah, like that couldn't happen. Because I got to a point where this is my friend and she told me she went through a situation like this. She wouldn't make this shit up because it's no longer that time period where we're, we're, we're like, we're doubting things or I'm doubting things. And you just said like, why would you, if you had nothing to gain from, from something, why would you make up a claim like that? There's actually a lot of research on on this stuff specifically. And it's really funny because it's like, it's not funny, but it's like uh, false rape claims being like a, a thing people are worried about is, I mean, statistically, you're more likely to die from like a shark flying in your window. Um, like statistically speaking, the, the number of sexual assaults that happen that aren't reported to anybody is the majority of them. And then from there, you have a much smaller number that ever go to any sort of official capacity, like a school or police or whatever. And then a much smaller number that ever go to some sort of trial. And then a much smaller number that ever result in any kind of 
prison time. And that's not to dissuade people from going forward with accusations, but that is the fact. The vast majority of accusations never come forward. There's some incredible research out there that's like overwhelmingly about this. And then there's a great article and it's like, who makes false rape accusations? We have data on this. With the situations where that happens, there's two. There's two major times when that happens. Either incredibly young women who are worried that they might be pregnant or actually are pregnant and are in a situation where they would get in big trouble for that. Mm -hmm. That's one of them. Where they'll usually make an accusation about either somebody that they don't know or someone who's from a um, community that's more marginalized in order to like uh, push off blame. Um, so, you know, that's, that's going to be your, um, yeah, like teen girls, or that's going to be your like historical, um, justifications for lynching, stuff like that. You're going to have those kind of stories. And then you're going to have the folks who make false race allegations out of some sort of like mental distress. And those stories are not just like your run of the mill date rape, those are going to be extreme. They're going to be like date rape, not date rape, like gang rape on a pile of broken glass. They're going to be extreme because it's not, it's not about the accuracy. It's about the impact. It's, there are certain mental conditions where folks are just for whatever reason, like prone to lying in these very extreme ways that are like evoking of, um, energy and attention towards them. And that's that's how false rape accus- accusations tend to look. It's one of those two things, statistically speaking. Um, the idea that Dr. Ford made up this scenario where it was like not actually penetrative sex, it was just like this terrible groping and this like grabbing and choking and, and covering her face, that's a super realistic sounding claim according to anybody who studies this stuff. And most of the stories that people do come forward with are like pretty particular patterns. And it's basically that like people who commit sexual violence aren't doing so because they may or may not even think it's wrong. Like if you remember her testimony, she was talking about the laughter, you know, a lot of these, especially group violence where there's like more than two men there. um, That's more about the men bonding than it is about the sex. That's much more about them committing it together. You know, like you, they could just as easily be like blowing up frogs with fireworks, you know, fireworks. Like it's about committing an act together. It's a, it's a male bonding thing. And when we think about who gets accused of sexual violence, the folks that you're more likely to see actually punished are not powerful in culture, but the folks who are most likely to actually commit sexual violence are popular, are like these alpha dudes because it's not about the sex they can absolutely access sex in other ways it's about the power it's it's the same thing as like bullying behavior it's the same thing as just like just flexing in general like the idea that i can get away with this and so i'm going to and so when it's when the accusations happen against somebody who's very popular who's an athlete who has a lot of money who has a lot of power a lot of social cachet etc like that rings very true to people who study this because it's like, yeah, that's part of his whole dominance thing. That's like his whole persona is about power and domination. That's absolutely on brand. That doesn't make it less likely because he could sleep with people for other ways. The fact that he could, you know, just have a bunch of people who are interested for other reasons is not a counter argument because that's not what rape is about at all. Like, if, if rape were just about accessing sex, this would be a very different conversation. This is what I wanted. This is what I wanted. I wanted an educational moment, a teachable moment. I wanted there, there to be lessons tonight, which is why I'm kind of glad that I, I named the show Fight the Power because you said rape is more so about power than it is about anything else. Because I was talking to a friend of mine, maybe a coworker earlier today about that. I said, you know, look at what happens in prisons. Like, you know, when prison rape happens, it's not, not really about, like, the pleasure. It's about power. Goodness gracious. I mean, it's like dogs mounting each other, you know? It's like, ser- like, seriously, like, quite seriously, why do dogs do that? It's not because, like, they're particularly horny or they have a great connection to this other dog or that other dog is just looking real good. Like, it's about, it's about exerting one's dominance that's what it is and like we have this intrinsic tying of like power and ownership into sexuality because we've just done that historically for so long that it's really difficult to parse them out and to just have like 
a moment of seeing another person that you like find very attractive and like having a connection with them, whether it's like a deep emotional one or you'll just literally both think each other hot, whatever to approach it from that place where it's like, what do you want to do? What do I want to do? And then you navigate that together, which is what I think sexuality should look like, which I think is a more sustainable model. But historically we have treated sex as part of property and the way that we have negotiated sexual relationships is so much about maintaining power structures. Like I think we talked about this last time where it's like, why do we have monogamy? Why do we have the institution of marriage? Well, it's so that guys don't have to take care of kids that aren't biologically related to them. That's the only reason that we have legal institutions of marriage. It's the only reason we have these ideas of like purity before marriage is the only idea. It's the only reason. And it's the reason we still have this idea that like men can have multiple partners, but women cannot like that would be somehow fundamentally a bad thing in the, you know, like the relationship is ruined. So it, it all has to do with perceiving partners as part of your, your estates, part of your winnings, part of the proof of you being successful versus being an interactive opportunity, being a chance to communicate like a thing that is fun. That's the other thing. <laughs> it's like, this is, it's more fun I think personally when everybody's having a good time, yes. like board games are way better when everybody wants to play them. Have you ever played a board game with someone who didn't want to play it? That's not fun. It's not, it's, it's annoying as hell. Yeah. It's awful. That's why Monopoly is terrible because it was literally, this is a side story, but they designed Monopoly two different ways. One where people work together. Um, and then one where it is the way that we know it, where it's like you basically win by being an asshole to your friends. And that's a successful way, but like that's just us playing capitalism. <laughs> like, it's a terrible game. That's me just bitching about Monopoly. It's got a, it's got a pass go. Yeah, just, that was a that was a derailment. Amber Rose had her slut walk in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, this past weekend, and people have a tendency to criticize her and her movement because they see her like she may pose a certain way on Instagram or whatever social media platform that she's using, whether she may be dressed, you know, nude or scantily clad or whatever it is, she'll say that her posing is her like exhibiting her version of feminism. Of course everybody all these guys are like, no, that's not what it is, that's not what it is. But in your opinion, can sexuality symbolize feminism? Yeah, I mean I think an important piece here is that we look at feminism historically we are in what a lot of folks would call third wave feminism um so feminism has gone through multiple iterations and it historically has been about you know like combating um domestic violence and relationships getting voting rights being able to own property in your own name those sort of things and like once we get those things taken out of the way then we can keep moving forward when we got into second wave feminism, which is what a lot of folks would consider like their mom or their grandma's feminism, which was like bra burning and like anti-porn and trying to get to the place where women are not just objects, where, you know, we're taken seriously as professionals and we're seen as equals and blah, blah, blah. And in, in second wave feminism, we had to upend the idea that women just exist as sexy things to look at. And that was a very big hill that we are still continuing to climb. However, we are now in a place in the, the feminism that exists now where we, we have to be beyond that because I don't have to choose to be unattractive to men in order to be a feminist. I mean, I can. That's my, that's my absolute choice. I could do that if I want to. I can look like whatever I want to, though. That's the thing. I should, if I like makeup, if I want to be femme, if I want to be sexy, if I like being seen being naked, if I like being a source of arousal for people, that's my fucking right. There, there is no double standard on men where it's like, if you are perceived as attractive, you are no longer competent. Like a perfect example would be my future husband, Michael B. Jordan, who, you know, we all know we have seen him shirtless many a time and we don't think he's stupid because of it. We don't think he's like bad at his job because he's also good looking, right? Like we don't apply that standard to men. Like, every, you know, like the Chris Hemsworth, all of them, they can be shirtless all the time. 
And nobody thinks that they are lesser for it. But among women, we have this expectation that you have to choose. Are you going to be sexy and that's your route or are you going to be taken seriously? Those are your choices. And that's the way that, that our culture like frames it. And so we are, we are at the place now in feminism where it's like, no, literally it's, it's up to me. If I find empowerment in modesty, if I find empowerment in being covered head to toe, you know, if I find empowerment in looking um, traditionally masculine, that's my choice. But if I find empowerment in getting naked on a stage and like whipping up a bunch of people into a frenzy, I have that right too. And I actually, shameless plug right now, have a show. It's called Get You a Girl Who Can Do Both. We call it Get You a Babe Who Can Do Both. We call it Do Both because there's like a lot of there's a lot of conversations about like what should it be called, but. Um, we have burlesque performers who are people who, you know, like strip and that is their job and that is their art form, give a TED talk first. Nice. So it's just a subject of their expertise, like because they are complex individuals who know about other stuff. So they give a TED talk, a five minute lightning talk on an issue, a subject that they know about. So it could be anything from like um, ethical real estate to what are, you know, the philosophical underpinnings of the Sith versus the Jedi. Um techniques of uh cognitive behavioral therapy it could be in this upcoming show we have like techniques of scaring people used by haunted houses um how generation gaps affect workplaces like whatever whatever they know about so they give a five minute talk all the all the performers give a a five minute talk everybody listens riveting etc and then the second half is all burlesque and it's the same people and the point of the show is i don't have to choose between being a competent professional and being sexy. And so to go back to Amber Rose, she's a perfect exemplar of that to me because she is a fantastic business person, like great activist. And she's not ashamed of the fact that she is like sexy as hell and gets laid whenever she wants to. Like her, uh, she has that video that's like, rather than the walk of shame, it's like coming home super prideful. Like I got hella laid. And when I want to get laid, I get hella laid. Like, I'm super proud of that. I think that's great. So I, I think she's phenomenal. I, not everybody feels empowered by being sexy, but you should have the option if you want to. And that's the whole point. So are you telling me that I can be both a podcast host and a kinkster at the same time? Yes, please. Let's do it. Yes. Yes. It's all facts. I'm going to get into that in later episodes, but as for right now, keep it on that point. Yeah. Keep it on that point. So uh, this has been a very, very important episode for me just to witness, just to listen. Because after this, of course, on the ride home, I'm going to be in my head just like figuring out, like going back through all the old stuff that I've witnessed in my life and just checking old thoughts and old behaviors. And fortunately for me, all the friends that I have now, like my close friends, are guys who I would consider them feminist. They were all part of like the progressive movement. So look, after this, I'm gonna get in my zone and just like just go out there and start preaching the gospel out here, checking fools left and right. Like, what up, son? Change your ways up. You know what I mean? Just like try to be more of an angel agent of change than just a bump in the log. If I might offer a suggestion, like, Boom. so obviously there's like the, the idea, like you, you call out your friends when they do stuff that's, that's like inappropriate or, you know, call in, I'd say I'm more pro call in, like talk to a person from a place of like assuming that you care about them and you want right. them to be better. But I also just recommend on like a small level, like changing, um, your media diet. Like, so my friend Daryl, we do DTF together. He just told me like he, he listens to a lot of podcasts and he just made a point to follow more women on Twitter, to listen to more podcasts that have women, um, especially like women of color, because it was like examining his media diet. Those were not the voices he was listening to. And as long as you don't listen to those voices, it's just that much harder to like integrate these things into your like understanding of the world. And so if you look at who who is influencing you on a day-to-day basis, you know, just try to follow more folks who are from these perspectives that don't get mainstream airtime. And, and like, then it just becomes more of the way that you approach the world. I'll definitely fall back on my, uh, my Joe Rogan. (laughs) 
Sometimes on YouTube, it gets those nights, I'm just sitting there bored, like, what's he talking about today? I've been sitting there for an hour, like, damn, this hour just came and it went. Boom. But yeah, righteous. I will be doing more of that. Listening to more of the ladies out here and other people. Um, QPOCs, you know what I mean? It's getting more of a different perspective than my own. Than that. That's fair. It's a fair assessment. All right, so Dr. Timory Lee, before we end this episode here, I want to know how can they find you via social media and upcoming events, you know. Don't know about all the good stuff you got going on, so. Oh, I like it. Um, so you can see more of my sex education work at sexwithtimory.com. So that's T-I-M-A-R-E-E. There's sexwithtimory.com. There's sexwithtimory on Facebook. Um, I'm on Twitter. If you look for Timory's T-I-M-A-R-E, there aren't a lot of us, so I'm pretty easy to find. And for burlesque stuff, like talking about the the show that I just mentioned, Get You a Girl Who Can Do Both, that's October 19th at Ruba Club. Doors of Nine, Show of Ten. You can just show up. You can get tickets in advance if you want to um, by looking up Do Both Five. Yeah, also just if you're interested in burlesque and Philly in general, burlesqueadelphia.com. So it's the word burlesque, B-U-R-L-E-S-Q-U-E, adelphia.com. Um, there's a whole events calendar there. That's the whole community shows, so... You can see a burlesque show any night of the week in Philly. We are amazing for that. Um, I just really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Oh, yo, it's a blessing having you here. Um, you will see my black ass in the building on October 19th. Yes. Yes, oh, indeed. And also DTF, because I've already talked about that twice. Uh, DTF's Daryl Timory Fun Hour is the second Friday every month at Frankie Bradley's. This upcoming show is going to be on the 12th, so hopefully folks will hear this in time for that. Um, we have a special guest host, uh, Katanya Mosley. So. Okay. All right. So my Friday is pretty much packed. So we get down there, downtown, go to the first destination for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then we'll swing over to the Frankie Bradley's for the DTF show. Also, I love the fact that your initials are DTF. Right. Uh, also, is DTF. <laughs> it worked so out real well. It's fantastic. You know what I mean? It's, I like that a lot. So, boom, here we go. Episode 39 of The Weirdest New Black Show. Dr. Timory Lee has concluded. Thank you for being an awesome guest. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure and peace out.